Okay, so this is the fifth lecture in the series on early modern plays, and as we've gone along, I've tried to do something slightly different uh, with a slightly different critical emphasis to show some of the range of ways we can read the drama of the English Renaissance. So I gave a reading of the Spanish tragedy, which was broadly structural, a reading of Arden of Faversham, which was broadly tonal, a broadly historical reading of the Shoemaker's Holiday, and a broad, broadly generic reading of Revenge's tragedy last week with the kind of implicit aim of showing that any of these approaches could be taken to any of the other plays, or indeed to any other play you're reading or studying. So what I want to try and do this week with Middleton and Decker's play, The Roaring Girl, is to use it to kick off a discussion about early modern attitudes to gender. So this time I'm using much more extensive historical material and contextual material uh, available on your handouts. That's not to say that this isn't also a play which could be looked at alongside other city comedies, it certainly is, or to say that the circumstances of London in 1611 aren't relevant to its composition and reception. They certainly are relevant. Or that the issue of collaboration between the two writers mightn't also be interesting. It would also be interesting, but that's not, none of that is really what I'm going to do today. What I want to try and do is to think about how this play could give us a, a kind of way into contested questions about gender, sexuality uh, and uh, femininity in this period and how that might work, sort of work out historically from this starting point. So Middleton and Decker's play, The Roaring Girl, was performed at the Fortune Theatre in 1611. It's set in contemporary London and it tells the story of Moll Cutpurse, a woman who dresses as a man and whose sexual morality is open to question. Her virtue, though, turns out to be exemplary. She exists, sorry, she assists in a classic romantic comedy plot, the conversion of an unsympathetic father from opposing the marriage of his son, Sebastian, to his chosen wife, the eminently suitable Mary. Okay, so that's a, a new comedy plot. We talked about new comedy in relation to the Shoemaker's Holiday. New comedy has patriarchal blocking figure usually stopping the aspirations, usually romantic aspirations of the younger generation. Very common uh, plot in, in uh, city comedy. Mole Cutpurse is surrounded by various effete male gallants with great names like Laxton, which translates as nobles, and Sir Beauteous Ganymede, which probably doesn't need much translating. So, so far so familiar. Women who dress as men are a stock feature of stage comedy of the period. Shakespeare's heroines are perhaps the best known instances of this trope. We might think of Rosalind as Ganymede in As You Like It, Viola as Cesario in Twelfth Night, both plays which predate The Roaring Girl by about ten years. But what's most fascinating about The Roaring Girl as a particularly rich and complex dramatisation of the gender politics of the early 17th century is its source. The play is entered on the stationer's register, that's the kind of equivalent of, of registering a, a copyright in a, printed, in, in, in a text which is going to be printed. So it's registered in the stationer's register only a few weeks after the church court had arraigned one Mary Frith. The church court is the ecclesiastical authority with jurisdiction on all moral and sexual matters in early modern London. So the church court arraigns one Mary Frith and only weeks later a play about her comes to, uh, uh, comes to the stage and comes 
towards being printed. And I'm going to give you the transcript from the church court uh, to show you what Mary Frith, what Mary Frith is being charged with in the in the church court. So, Officium Domini contra Mariam Frith. This day and place, the said Mary appeared personally and then and there voluntarily confessed that she had long frequented all or most of the disorderly and licentious places in this city, as namely she hath usually, in the habit of a man, resorted to alehouses, taverns, tobacco shops, and also to playhouses there to see plays and prizes, and namely, being at a play some about three quarters of a year since, at the fortune, in man's apparel, and in her boots, and with her sword by her side, she told the company there present that she thought many of them were of the opinion that she was a man, but if any of them would come to her lodging, they should find she is a woman, and some other immodest and lascivious speeches she also used at that time. And also sat there upon the stage, in the public view of all the people there present, in man's apparel, and played upon her lute, and sang a song. And she furtherly confessed that she hath for this long time past usually blasphemed and dishonoured the name of God by swearing and cursing, and by tearing God out of his kingdom if it were possible, and hath also usually associated herself with ruffinly swaggering and lewd company, as namely with cut purses, blasphemous drunkards, and others of bad note, and of most dissolute behaviour, with whom she hath, to the great shame of her sex, oftentimes, as she said, drunk hard and distempered her head with drink. And further confesseth that since she was punished for the misdemeanours aforementioned in Bridewell, she was since, upon Christmas Day at night, taken in Paul's church with her petticoat tucked up about her in the fashion of a man with man's clothing to the great scandal of diverse persons who understood the same and to the disgrace of all womanhood. And she saith and protesteth that she is heartily sorry for all her foresaid licentious and dissolute life, and giveth her earnest promise to carry and behave herself ever from henceforward, honestly, soberly, and womanly, and resteth ready to undergo any censure or punishment for her misdemeanours aforesaid, in such manner and form as shall be assigned her by the Lord Bishop of London, her ordinary. And then... She being pressed to declare whether she had not been dishonest of her body, and hath not also drawn other women to lewdness by her persuasions and by carrying herself like a board, she absolutely denied that she was chargeable with either of these imputations. And thereupon his lordship thought fit to remand her to Bridewell, to remand her to Bridewell from whence she now came, until he might further examine the truth of the misdemeanours enforced against her without laying as yet any further censure upon her. It's a fabulous uh, list is a fabulous sort of deposition, and I just want to spend a few minutes examining how systematically transgressive uh, Mary Frith's behaviour is according to uh, gender norms in the period. I'm going to save the, the biggest of her sort of infractions of normative femininity, cross-dressing, until the last. So, firstly, Mary is accused uh, of uh, unwomanly behaviour in her resorts and habits. In her visits to alehouses, taverns and tobacco shops, the record makes it clear these were repeated infringements, Mary enters a male world. 16th century doctrine on women's place inscribed her firmly within the home and in the domestic sphere. But we shouldn't jump to immediate conclusions about this. There's an important historical argument that this gives women 
a certain agency, and control over an important realm which in the period would include the management of servants, household accounting, and even control of certain domestic light industry like brewing. But even if the woman was queen of her own hearth, she was not expected to enter into male recreations, taverns and tobacco smoking in particular. Samuel Rowland's conduct book of 1617, The Bride, we talked before I think about how what a market there is for conduct literature. We talked about that in relation to Protestant ideals of companionate marriage in Arden of Faversham. Uh, and conduct literature, which is trying to um, tell the middling sort of person how to conduct themselves, how to run their household, uh, how to manage their sort of domestic and private affairs. This is one from Samuel Rowland. And the bride illustrates how the terrain of the good and modest woman is constructed as diametrically opposed to what Mary Frith is doing in that deposition. A modest woman will encompass keep and decently unto her calling go. A modest woman's home is her delight of business there to have the oversight. At public play she never will be known and to be, ca- and to be tavern guest she ever hates. She scorns to be a street wife, idle one, or field wife, ranging with her walking mates. She knows how wise men censure of such dames, and with what blots they blemish their good names. It is, of course, important to recognise how much of the discourse about women's role in conduct books, in sermons, and in manuals of household management in the period, like Roland's The Bride, needs to be read as prescriptive rather than descriptive. They're prescriptive, not necessarily descriptive. It would be a mistake, I think, to take them at their word as articulators of a current state of affairs. Just as modern injunctions about not drinking too much or about always using antibacterial hand gel tell us not how people behave already, if we didn't drink too much or were always washing our hands, there'd be no need to tell us to do it, but rather tells us how some spokespeople for their culture tend to think... uh, to think how how we ought to behave. So early modern conduct literature attempts to tell women what they should be doing and to instruct men in how to impose this gender order rather than in describing how women actually do conduct themselves. Indeed, the frequency of the prohibitions on women gadding about and the insistency of the expression of the ideological domesticity of females may suggest, in fact, that behaviour did not conform to this prescription. So just as uh, injunctions about drinking too much perhaps tell us that people do drink too much rather than that they don't, injunctions about not being outside the house and trying to be constructed within the house may tell us that women didn't do that rather than that they did. Conduct literature is a part of an attempt to control women's behaviour rather than a a reflection of how things are. We can look at the juxtaposition between Rowland's text and Mary Frith Uh, in some ways to to set out the most extreme version of that uh, contradiction. Secondly, Mary is indicted by the church court for making a spectacle of herself at the theatre. Not only is she a spectacle by drawing attention to herself through music and singing, but she also sits herself on the stage, on one of the gallant's stools, to place herself clearly in view. It is not actually known how many people went to the theatre, sorry, how many women went to the theatre in this period. Andrew Gurr, in his book Playgoing in Shakespeare's London, 
has gathered together in an appendix all the references in letters, diaries and other accounts which discuss people going to the theatre. And if we look out for women as audience members in his list, there are references, but they tend to date from the Caroline period rather than from the Jacobean period. Okay, so that's Andrew Gurr, G-U-R-R, in his book Playgoing in Shakespeare's London. Rowland's idealised bride does not attend the theatre. And certainly, the women most readily associated with the theatre in the early 17th century were prostitutes. There are a number of satirical accounts of women as sexual spectacles at the theatre. I've chosen one by Thomas Decker, uh, the co-author of The Roaring Girl, as an illustration. This is from Decker's book, Jests to Make You Merry, 1607. A wench having a good face, a good body, and good clothes on, but of bad conditions, i.e. bad morality, sitting one day in the tuppenny room of a playhouse and a number of young gentlemen about her, against all whom she maintained talk. One sat over the stage, said to his friend, Do you not think that yonder flesh will stink anon, having so many flies blowing on it? Oh, quoth his friend, I think it stinks already, for I never saw so many crows together but there was not some carrion not there was some carrion not far off it's an awful image of uh, uh, kind of corruption uh, the, the the woman the wench being uh, a source of corruption uh, surrounded by uh, carrion eaters like flies and crows and obviously it's a way of demeaning women who attend the theatre the fact that this takes place in the theatre uh, is, is important to the way this joke or mer merriment works. Mary also condemns herself by her loose banter. She told the company then present that she thought many of them were of the opinion that she was a man, but if any of them would come to her lodging, they should find she is a woman, and some other immodest and lascivious speeches she also used at that time. Mary seductively combines the thrill of display and concealment issuing on the public stage the invitation to her private lodging. But it is the act of speaking, above all, which condemns her. The idealised silence of women was an important part of early 17th century doctrines of female behaviour. Richard Braithwaite, writing in the mid-17th century in a conduct book called The English Gentlewoman, was of the opinion that silence in woman is a moving rhetoric, winning most when in words it wooeth least. Puritan William Googe, in an account of the obligations of both partners in marriage, said this of woman, as their words must be few, so those few words must be reverend and meek, both of which are also under the, implied under the forenamed word silence. The opposite of the modest silent woman was the shrew, like Shakespeare's Kate, a negative stereotype defined through nagging speech. Braithwaite describes, describes how, for the shrew, silence she hates as her sex's scandal, remarking her tongue is glibbery as an eel. Female speech was widely associated with sexual laxity. Whores in the drama are often characterised as inveterate and bawdy talkers, and loose tongues become quickly elided with loose morals. 
Now Mary is herself interrogated by the church authorities and pressed to declare whether she had not been dishonest of her body and hath not also drawn other women to lewdness by her persuasions and by carrying herself like a board. She answers that with a vehement denial. There is no historical evidence that Mary Frith worked as a prostitute. For one thing, her longevity, she lived into her 70s, would seem to be pretty conclusive evidence against working in this dangerous industry. But this slur was nevertheless frequently levelled at her, not least because of her assumption of speech and its associations with promiscuity. It's very striking that her dressing as a man is identified with an aberrant female sexuality, a distinctly female libido. So, Mary's arraignment by the ecclesiastical court represents her as transgressing norms of femininity by entering male space, the taverns and the playhouse, making a spectacle of herself, and engaging in bawdy and loose talk. All these are overlaid, of course, with her adoption of male dress. At a time of rapid social mobility and conspicuous consumption, clothing was a crucial signifier of rank and status. Proclamations called the sumptuary laws, the sumptuary laws, were made at intervals throughout the Tudor Stuart period, and these are intended to legislate for the type of clothing which could be worn by each rank of society and by each sex. For example, the laws declared that none should wear cloth of gold, silver, tinseled satin, silk, or cloth mixed or embroidered with gold or silver, except barons and above that rank, knights of the garter and privy councillors. Velvet was reserved for knights and those with a net income of over £200. Damask, taffeta and grain for the eldest sons of knights and those with a net income of over £100. Uh, you can look at the details of uh, the sumptuary laws in Lisa Jardine's book, Still Harping on Women. So, sorry, Still Harping on Daughters. These restrictions on dress are partly protectionist in inspiration because more costly and fancy fabrics and styles were imported from continental Europe and numerous governments attempted to reduce the dependence of the English economy on the export of staples and the import of luxury goods. But more importantly, I think, the sumptuary laws were designed to make social status legible, external and unmistakable. The justifications for this manoeuvre are strangely self-defeating. On the one hand, only barons could wear tinseled satin because that was a fabric fitting to their rank. Their inner worth and status, their barrenness, if you like, was expressed in the sumptuousness of their dress. As one of the official homilies appointed to be read in churches, against excess in apparel. It's odd to think if you were trying to list a, a set of, sort of social ills or sins that you wanted to deal with with a, a series of official homilies. Excess in apparel probably wouldn't seem to us top of the list uh, of bad things people can do, but in the uh, 16th century it is. Uh, it's, a lot, it's there with uh, whoredom, rebellion, other kind of bad things. Against excess in apparel reminds congregations 
Inasmuch as God hath appointed every man his degree and office, within the limits whereof it behoveth him to keep himself, therefore all may not look to wear like apparel, but every one according to his degree, as God hath placed him. So the idea that you can only wear uh, the fabrics uh, suitable for your rank becomes a God-given ordinance here. So on the one hand, um, uh, social status is, is, is registered and reflected in clothing. But on the other hand, there's a definite anxiety that without this clear external marker, perhaps the barrenness of the barren would not exist. If rank is only about the clothes you wear, perhaps the fabric denotes and bestows status on the wearer rather than the other way around. Okay, so if the fabric becomes uh, what's, what's important in social terms, not something interior or intrinsic to the person who wears it. There's a kind of parallel between this and the modern attempts of companies like, say, Ralph Lauren to protect their trademarks from counterfeit goods. What the Ralph Lauren logo conveys, or what they want it to convey, is that the person has spent a lot of money on the item and that therefore they are rich. The anxiety about trademark infringement and about car boot sale Ralph Lauren knockoffs is that this legibility, Ralph Lauren equals rich, becomes blurred. The difference is, though, that the early modern period is trying to retain some sense that there is innate status, there is internal, innate, inherent status in rank or class, even while nascent capitalism is overturning old social hierarchies with a new, moneyed, entrepreneurial class, like, remember, Simon Eyre's wife Marjorie going shopping in the shoemaker's holiday. The idea that the flouting of the sumptuary laws created category confusion is often stated. As the anti-theatrical pamphleteer Philip Stubbs notes in his Anatomy of Abuses, there is such a confused mingle-mangle of apparel in England and such preposterous excess thereof, as everyone is permitted to flaunt it out in what apparel he, lu- in what apparel he lust himself or can get by any means so that it is very hard to know who is noble, who is worshipful, who is a gentleman, and who is not. These anxieties about the lack of consonance between social status and clothing are also given a gendered inflection. The sumptuary laws provided for the clothing appropriate to each sex individually, but it was also frequently asserted that infringements of the laws meant that the distinction between men and women was becoming blurred. It's interesting that that's a phenomenon of almost of, of many sort of movements in fashion through the centuries, that what it does is to undermine uh, an immediately legible distinction between the sexes. One example of this can be found in William Harrison's description of England, 1587. Harrison rebukes men for wearing their hair long like women, but the main burden of his criticism falls on women themselves. It is most to be lamented that they do now far exceed the lightness of our men, who nevertheless are transformed from the cap even to the very shoe, and such staring attire, as in times past was supposed meet for none but light housewives only, is now become a habit for chaste and sober matrons. What should I say of their doublets with pendant cod pieces on the breast, full of jags and cuts, and sleeves of sundry colours, their galley gaskins to bear out their bums and make their attire to fit plumb round as they turn it about them. 
their farthingales and diversely coloured nether stocks of silk, jersey and such like, whereby their bodies are rather deformed than commended. I have met with some of these trolls in London so disguised that it hath passed my skill to discern whether they were men or women. Thus it is now come to pass that women are become men and men are transformed into monsters. Stubbs rails against women wearing men's clothes as hermaphroditi, hermaphroditi, that is, monsters of both kinds, half women and half men, just like Mary's combination of petticoat and men's cloak. Stubbs goes on to assert that, quote, our apparel was given us as a sign distinctive to discern between sex and sex. Our apparel was given us as a sign distinctive to discern between sex and sex. It's an amazing thought when you think about it, since it is not probably the mark of sexual difference which occurs to us most readily. Surely, one might argue, our genitals were given us as a sign distinctive to discern between sex and sex, not our clothes. But that means that for Stubbs, wearing the dress of the opposite sex can be seen to erode the whole cultural binary of male and female. Like the possibility that being a baron might only be a matter of wearing the tinseled silk signalling that you had the status of baron, the idea that gender might be located in clothing is a radical threat to a social order based on gender hierarchy. And it's within this context that I think Mary's assumption of male dress, the most damning element of her arraignment, needs to be seen. The correction book records her promise to carry and behave herself ever from henceforward, honestly, soberly, and womanly. Now, the closeness of Middleton and Decker's play, The Roaring Girl, to the events recorded in the correction book is, I think, clear. As I've already mentioned, the play was registered within days of the court minute, and it refers to the incident of Mary at the Fortune Playhouse in its epilogue, suggesting, perhaps, that her performance at the Fortune was not impromptu, but planned and advertised. In what follows, I'm going to use the word the name Mary to designate the real woman in contemporary London, Mary Frith, and Moll to, to refer to the play's fictionalised heroine. If, says the epilogue, probably spoken by the character of Moll in the play, if the audience is not satisfied with the dramatic re representation, if what we have done cannot full pay your expectation the roaring girl herself, some few days hence, shall on this stage give larger recompense. In promising the entrance of the real Mary into the theatre, the stage Moll here blurs the line between fiction and reality. As a unique characterisation of a living person of contemporary notoriety, there are no other plays about living uh, people. Uh, all about living people in, uh, in the Renaissance theatre. So as a unique characterisation of a living person of contemporary notoriety, the play confounds the distinction between the stage and the simultaneous life of London and its populace and makes clear that gender infringement, especially cross-dressing, is not only a generic feature of comic make-believe, but maybe a feature of contemporary life. <coughs> So the story of the play contains many elements and stock characters of the popular genre of city comedy. Basically, the play traces the conquest of various obstacles to its central romantic pairing of Sebastian and Mary Fitzallard through disguise and clever intrigue. 
Moll is the enabling figure for the resolution of the plot, although she herself remains unassimilable into it. She's the same person and in the same position at the end of the play as she was at the beginning. It is her interventions which enable the marriage to take place and indeed enable all the other elements of the plot to be resolved. For example, she uses her contacts in the London underworld to return uh, a purse which has been stolen at the Fortune Theatre. So Moll is a figure who resolves rather than is resolved. She's crucial to the theme of the play that things are not what they seem. Her appearance is equivocal. She is a woman in man's clothing, not a man, not even a pretend man, but a cross-dressed woman. Nobody, uh, nobody thinks she's a man. Nobody takes her. Nobody's taken in by this. It doesn't seem a, a disguise which in sort of contemporary parlance is designed to pass. To pass. She's not trying to pass as a man. She is uh, always a woman who's dressed as a man. In the play, she's accused of being a whore, but in fact she brings about marriage rather than threatening it. She's accused of dishonesty, but in fact she returns stolen goods rather than taking them. Asked whether she herself will marry, she sets proverbially impossible conditions. She will take her husband when you shall hear gallants void from sergeant's fear, honesty and truth unslandered, women manned but never pandered. Something about the, um, the, sort of the use of rhyme there which makes, and those short lines which makes that a kind of proverbial state of impossibility. These things will never come to pass. Throughout the play, she's viewed in sexual terms, but she is independent of male control, inverting conventional roles and the expectations others have of her. I scorn to prostitute myself to a man, I that can prostitute a man to me. I scorn to prostitute myself to a man, I that can prostitute a man to me. And the pattern of inversion, rhetorical inversion in that uh, pair of lines uh, is a good sort of small linguistic figure for the patterns of inversion more generally uh, that Moll uh, activates in the play. From her in-between position, she's neither totally male nor female. She also utters what Lisa Jardine has called home truths. Home truths. And that's the usual prerogative of a misrule figure like the fool. So she has some of that licensed fool, um, uh, licensed fool role in the play. Moll speaks explicitly her opposition to Puritan ideologies of female conduct. I have no humour to marry. I love to lie on both sides of the bed myself, and again on the other side. A wife you know ought to be obedient, but I fear me I am too headstrong to obey, therefore I'll ne'er go about it. I have the head now of myself, and am man enough for a woman. Marriage is but a chopping and changing where a maiden loses one head and has a worse in the place. So, unlike the cross-dressed heroines of Shakespearean comedy then, Moll does not adopt men's clothing to get herself a husband or for protection in exile from her native land. Her male costume is not a consistent disguise, but a kind of usurpation. She's not trying to be a man, 
but to adopt male dress and with it male prerogative. No one thinks she is a man, but they can't avoid the fact that she's dressed as one. And the sexual charge of that representation, too, is ambivalent. She boasts that she could cuckold both husband and wife, but hints there of a kind of lesbianism. I guess that's a shorthand, because all historians will tell you there's no such thing as homosexuality in this period. Um, but that, that kind of hint of uh, a kind of sex, sexual magnetism for men and women is definitely of a sort of top-shelf male fantasy brand. She's a figure of untrammeled virility, in sharp contrast to the foppish impotence of the male gallants around her, and a source of erotic fantasy to them. So her cross-dressing is an opportunity for sexual fantasy, both for the play's male characters and perhaps by, uh, for its audience. So, for example, when she's in male dress in the play, she's threatened uh, by Laxton with rape. And it's not clear whether Laxton is threatening a woman or a man quite uh, in the scene. We become voyeurs of a scene in which the tailor designs Moll a male costume. Uh, it's a very funny scene which reveals that the design for the costume incorporates a phallus in the breeches. The tailor recalls that the last design was, quote, somewhat stiff between the legs, boom, but promises an improved prosthetic device next time around. He observes her new breeches, quote, will take up a yard more, playing on the term yard for penis, and she instructs the tailor, pray, look it be put in then. In Susan Zimmerman's book, Erotic Politics, Erotic Politics on the reading list, Marjorie Garber has written that this play, quote, theorises the construction of gender in a disconcertingly literal way through the construction of bodies and of clothes. So theorises the construction of gender in a disconcertingly literal way through the construction of bodies and of clothes. Moll gets her dick from the tailors, so to speak. Probably that will be cut out on iTunes as inappropriate remark. Sorry, sorry, iTunes. Um, being, a, being a man, the play suggests, is about packing a codpiece. That's what it means. And Moll is clearly, in this case, more of a man than those lacking specimens whose names denote incomplete masculinity, Ganymede and Laxton. In the preface to the readers of the play, Thomas Middleton describes its story. Venus, being a woman, passes through the play in a doublet and breeches, a brave disguise and a safe one, if the statute untie not her codpiece point. The word statute there seems to refer to the prohibition on women wearing male dress. As he describes it there, this single layer of disguise is relatively simple. The essential femaleness of the character is not in doubt, Venus being a woman. Similarly, the real Mary, according to the statement in the correction book, promises to settle the doubts of those inquisitive about her true sexual nature by undressing for them in her chamber. There, she says, the body underneath will put an end to confusion. It's clear that this cannot be the case in theatrical performance. It is not easy to resolve Moll's gender ambiguities with reference to the body underneath the clothes. Middleton and Decker's cross-dressed woman would, of course, have been played by a male actor. When you think about it, this is an extraordinary, radical thing to do, to respond to a contemporary, notorious case in which a woman is punished 
for not wearing women's clothes by writing a play about it. A play of all things is an art form dependent on cross-dressing for its very existence. In order to put a woman on the stage, you've already entered into, uh, you've already broken the, the kind of legibility of uh, inner and outer. John Reynolds, in his work, 1599, uh, The Overthrow of Stage Plays, expresses the moral uneasiness of anti-theatrical polemic on the subject of male actors in female roles. The apparel of women is a great provocation of men to lust and lechery, writes Reynolds, adding, a woman's garment being put on a man doth vehemently touch and move him with the remembrance and imagination of a woman, and the imagination of a thing desirable doth stir up the desire. Reynolds identifies the sexual charge of the cross-dressed boy player, both for people who are watching the play and for the people who are cross-dressing within it, as somehow unhealthily for him strung between hetero and homosexual desire. For Stubbs, transvestism blurs the distinction between the sexes and feminises the cross-dressed male body. One, to wear the apparel of another sex is to participate with the same and to adulterate the verity of his own kind. One, to wear the apparel of another sex is to participate with the same and to adulterate the verity of his own kind. The idea that clothing can actually do something to the body underneath was obsessively articulated by anti-theatrical pamphleteers. William Prynne tells a story from Cyprian to show how a man might be effeminated into a female, how their sex might be changed by art. And he makes it clear that art here is the theatre. Actors are those who, by unchaste infections of their members, which is a very nasty thought, unchaste infections of their members, effeminate their manly nature, being both effeminate men and women, yea, being neither men nor women. Effeminate here becomes a verb, you'll see that, 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 that happens in this period, of a gender shift which could creep up on the unwary, watch out, there's femininity about. The idea of becoming effeminate betrays an anxiety about the legibility and the fixity of gendered behaviours. Homosexual activity was also ascribed to boy players. You can almost hear William Prynne's heavy breathing as he wishes that thou couldst insinuate thine eyes into these players' secrets or set upon the closed doors of their bedchambers and bring all their innermost hidden cells unto the conscience of thine eyes. Men rush on men with outrageous lusts. So, the cross-dressed actor is figured as seductive in a manner neither totally female nor male, and men in the audience are prone to be affected, even aroused, by transvestite spectacles. Both actors and audience, then, are subject to the sexual transformations attendant on cross-dressing. The theatre is, again, constructed as a place of fluid, potentially subversive desires. Moll in The Roaring Girl is not, then, a woman who adopts male clothing as Mary Frith is, but a much more complex and ambiguously gendered subject, a boy actor dressed as a woman, playing a woman, dressing as a man. These levels don't, I think, cancel each other out. Moll is not androgynous or sexless, but rather overburdened with a sexual charge. 
The scene in which her breeches are made falls back on itself in ironic reference to the male body of the actor. For the transvestite stage to attempt the representation of real-life transvestism attests to its fascination with gender construction, with making and performing gender and sexuality. Now, accounts of sex and gender have tended to want to keep these two categories separate. So sex comes to refer to apparently immutable biological characteristics and gender to be the cultural norms layered onto these differences. This is a way of thinking which suggests that however gendered behaviours might be historicised, in, for example, the conduct literature I was just discussing, the physical body remains a constant, men are men and women are women. This commonsensical approach is, however, I think, inadequate for early modern constructions of the body. And I want to end the lecture by thinking about how Mary's recourse to her body as the absolute arbiter of sexual difference is itself a rather complicated manoeuvre for contemporaries. Even the interpretation of biology itself was not fixed. Galen, the first century medic, had posited a vision of sexual difference which was based crucially on extent rather than kind. According to this view of the body, sexual difference was not absolute but relative. This so-called one-sex model of biology, the one-sex model of biology, dominated thinking about sexual difference from classical antiquity to the end of the 17th century. Galen argued that the external genitalia of the male were present in the female, but turned inwards. Turn outward the woman's, turn inward, so to speak, and fold double the man's, and you will find the, the, you will find the same in both in every respect. So... Don't try, don't try this at home. Turn outward the woman's, turn inward, so to speak, and fold double the man's, and you will find the same in both in every respect. You can see the logic of this anatomical interpretation in the illustrations reproduced uh, on the handout there. The penis and testicles become the vagina, cervix, and ovaries. The sexes, according to Galen, share a common anatomy rather than each having their own specific biology. The reproductive organs are a kind of rubber glove that can be flipped inside out, and thus the sexes are linked by anatomy rather than forever and are unarguably divided by it. Women are thus inverted men. They have the same organs, but in the wrong place. Of course, this is a model which ultimately must come out to prove the supremacy of the male. Women are imperfectly developed males, the result of imperfect gestation. Many medical commentators believed that sex, the sex of the child, was fixed in the womb. Okay, not at the point of conception, but in the womb. The degree of heat in the womb governed the development of genital perfection, maleness or imperfection, femaleness. Bring forth male children only, Macbeth says to Lady Macbeth. Uh, that's something about her qualities in, imprinting themselves on the unborn child. Heat in the womb develops male children. A dank coldness in the womb encouraged the imperfect development of the female fetus. 
Others, though, argued that sex was not fully fixed before birth, but that there was a transitional stage during childhood by which males developed from a state close to that of females into adult men, marked by the ceremony of breaching when adolescent males were dressed as men rather than in the costume of sexually undifferentiated childhood. There's a notice on the women's changing rooms in the gym I go to which says uh, boys, boys over seven must use the male changing room. It's, it's, it's very much a kind of 21st century model of breaching. What's the point where children become male rather than female? They think it's seven. Breaching took it probably to about eight or nine uh, when you see children in uh, Elizabethan and Jacobean portraits, little children, there's no way of telling what sex they are. They don't have that pink-blue thing that we're kind of preoccupied by. Uh, the point is that they're undifferentiated. And breaching uh, puts boys into male clothing and usually takes them away from the female household, takes them away to school, puts them in male company, and so on. Now, the one-sex model, therefore, does not offer absolute boundaries that can define and fix gendered identity. It responds to a socio-cultural need for a gender hierarchy, figuring the female as imperfectly developed and the male as the perfect sexual specimen. But it stresses similarity rather than absolute difference, and thus makes sexual difference altogether more difficult to define and locate. The one-sex model necessarily allowed for hotter, stronger, more masculine women and for colder, weaker, more effeminate men. There was a sense of a continuum as well as a binary. And the gendering of the sexed body was additionally problematic in that those attributes thought to belong either to men or women could often be observed in the other sex. So sexual difference was thus both a continuum and a binary, and crucially it seemed to be thought of as potentially shifting, one that might possibly be subject to environmental factors after birth, just as it was before. Numerous commentators worry, therefore, that cross-dressing may actually affect the sexual characteristics of the body underneath. Sexual difference biology was repeatedly reinterpreted as the needs of gendered society changed. Rather than providing a factual basis on which gender was built, the body was itself a cultural property. Thomas Lecoeur's book, Making Sex, is the classic work on the implications of the one-sex model, and he uses a theatrical vocabulary to describe sexual difference. The body is like an actor on stage, ready to take on the roles assigned to it by culture. In my account, sex too, and not only gender, is understood to be staged. The vocabulary here, I think, coincides with postmodern <coughs> post-feminism in a critic like Judith Butler, uh, and I re really recommend particularly the introduction to her book Gender Trouble for work on gender in this period. Butler argues that, quote, the body is not a ready surface awaiting signification, but a constructed and interpreted space. And she sets out her thesis that, quote, the gendered body is performative. True gender is fantasy inscribed on the surface of bodies. She talks very revealingly about drag in contemporary gay culture, but in terms highly relevant to early modern transvestite theatre and to the Roaring Girl. In imitating gender, she says, drag implicitly reveals the imitative structures of gender itself, 
as well as its contingency. We see sex and gender denaturalised by means of performance. In choosing literal performance, the transvestite stage of the early modern theatre, as one of its key sites for interrogating gender roles, early modern culture, I think, reveals its fascination with the questions about with questions about essential or counterfeit or performed gender identity. The Roaring Girl is a perfect vehicle for this kind of playful investigation, particularly the Roaring Girl in performance. There's a, there's a great uh, revival of it with Helen Mirren as the Roaring Girl, uh, but the point, having a woman playing Moll completely loses uh, all the things that, which I've been trying to suggest are most fascinating and kind of tricksy about the play. And I hope you've given you some ideas about how you might locate that in a wider discourse on gender and sexuality. Next week is the final lecture, and I'm going to be talking about Webster's 1614 tragedy, The Duchess of Murphy. Thank you.